back to Across the Movie Aisle, presented by Bulwark Plus. I am your host, Sonny Bunch, culture editor of The Bulwark. I am joined, as always, uh, by Alyssa Rosenberg of The Washington Post and Peter Suderman of Reason Magazine. Alyssa, Peter, how are you today? I'm well, thank you. Happy to be talking about movies with friends. Uh, despite the fact that no one has watched any of the nominated movies, and despite the fact that no one is going to watch the show, probably, uh, that isn't stopping across the movie aisle from doing a special all-Oscars episode ahead of Sunday night's big show. You guys are in for a treat. Uh, that's right. The Oscars are this Sunday, and the people running things are kind of freaked out. At least that's my sense of things reading Brooks Barnes and Nicole Sperling in the New York Times, uh, who highlight that award season ratings are down across the board. The Grammys dip 53%. The Golden Globes drop more than 60%. Um, as Barnes and Sperling note, a 60% drop would mean viewership near the single digits for the Oscars, and that would be a real problem for the industry at large. But the Academy of, of Motion Picture Arts and Sciences in particular, uh, such a dip isn't out of the realm of possibility, given that the most nominated film, Netflix's Mank, has been heard of, heard of, heard of, not watched, heard of, by just 18% of active entertainment consumers. Uh, to combat audience malaise, the producers, including famed director Steven Zoderberg, are pushing hard for in-person acceptance speeches only. If you want to zoom in, you are out of luck. Uh, that is smart because Zoom-based awards show are absolutely terrible, as we have seen for the last year. Um, but another way to keep from bleeding audience members is to keep the politics out of the acceptance speeches. As Barnes and Sperling note, uh, that is a surefire way to lose eyeballs. Here's a quote from their piece. Quote, Increasingly, the ceremonies are less about entertainment honors and more about progressive politics, which inevitably annoys those in the audience who disagree. One recent producer of the Oscars who spoke on the condition of anonymity to discuss confidential metrics said minute-by-minute post-show ratings analysis indicated that vast swaths of people turned off their televisions when celebrities started to opine on politics. End quote. Uh, Alyssa, we've all heard people say that basketball players should shut up and dribble, uh, but should there be a no-politics mandate at the Oscars this year? Should Hollywood swells just shut up and accept? I mean, I think that if you're having a career defining moment where you're getting a huge award, you should talk about whatever you want to talk about. Um, you know, I think that as we've discussed on this podcast uh, a number of times, as much as I am, you know, pro political filmmaking and film as a tool of cultural change, that there has been this sense that, um, you know, politics has become kind of mandatory in the marketing of movies and um, that that marketing has been done to try and render movies sort of critic proof or criticism proof. And, you know, I think there are some people in Hollywood who are, you know, genuinely politically engaged and want to use that moment to talk about something that they are deeply invested in because it's one of the largest, you know, live audiences they will ever have. Um, and there are some people who get up there and feel like they have to, continue the kind of political spiel that was part of the marketing campaign for their movie. And, you know, I am all for people being genuine and weird and enthusiastic in these, you know, career pinnacle moments. Um, but I think that if you're going up there and delivering what it's effectively a piece of studio marketing, um, that's just less interesting to me, even as a politically engaged person um, from, you know, from, the perspective of someone who kind of craves the spontaneous moments. So I think stars should feel like they can treat this like a personal moment. Um, and if that, you know, if you're George Clooney and you have been doing advocacy work for decades and that's what's really important to you, like let it rip. But, 
you know, I think it is totally fine to talk about how your, you know, husband made your career possible or how you really bonded with a director or whatever. I mean, um, more spontaneity is interesting, um, less politics for uh, marketing purposes. Well, and, and, and to, to riff on this a little bit, Peter, I mean, I, I, the sense I get is, is that it's not politics so much uh, that people get annoyed by so much as partisan politics. I don't think it's I don't think it's necessarily the issue advocacy stuff, though. There's certainly there's certainly part of that in play here as much as, you know, I, like. Republicans don't want to hear Democrats talking about how Republicans are evil. I mean, that that is like kind of what it comes down to. Or am I am I misreading the room? I think there's some of that, but I think also a certain type of viewer probably just doesn't want to hear about issue advocacy, um, or at least a, a issue advocacy that is seen to have a, a, a clear political and maybe partisan, you know, valence, right? I mean, I would sort of, I, I would uh, put climate change on this, on, on the list of things that there's like a class of viewer, and I'm not saying I am one of them, but like there's, I feel like there's probably a class of viewer who's like, ah, oh, come on. I don't care about the weather. I just want to see Lord of the Rings win. Who cares, right? Um, Who does? And this, I don't. I don't and, understand why you're poo-pooing this. Everyone should care about Lord of the Rings more than the weather. To me, you know, sort of. I have like really mixed feelings about this because, on the one hand, um, I don't share most of Hollywood's kind of politics writ large, right? Like I'm libertarian, and I am. And yes, there's some overlap, you know, sort of with. Uh, some of the liberal social values on some of these things. Um, but like, I, I don't, I just, it, with drugs, the drugs are great kids. Um, uh, and, and we're going to be celebrating drugs at reason.com this whole week, which is four twenty <laughs> week so, drug um, week. Uh, so I don't share a lot of this, of their politics. And like it, in some ways, I'm not that interested in George Clooney's personal politics. Um, I, I'm interested in his movies at the same time. I'm also honestly, even me, I'm not that interested in like George Clooney thanking some Mr. Moneybags producer who like, you know, believed in this little project. And like what what that actually means is this person wrote a check for 10 or 20 million dollars, hoping hoping to make five times that back. Now, of course, George Clooney is now the Mr. Moneybags himself because he has a tequila brand. But like whoever it is. Right. Where the money um, is. I, you know, there's sort of a, a lot of what they of what ends up going into these award speeches just isn't super relevant to average moviegoers. And I think in in a lot of ways, I agree with Alyssa. That's kind of okay, especially when the, when the speeches are under a minute long, as they tend to be, with the exception of just a couple of big speeches each night. Now, this this ceremony is supposedly going to be bigger, be a little bit different. Um, we are hearing both that they intend to make the entire ceremony shorter and also the speeches longer. And I'm not quite sure how that's going to work. You get rid of the music, see. you get right, rid of the sure. terrible musical numbers, you get you cut them down from like 10 montages to like five montages. They're also not having physical awards presenters. So there's just like walking and talking may take up less time. I mean, I would honestly be in favor of a solution where they cut the speeches uh, for everyone except like lifetime achievement award winners because those people know in advance they can write something that is sort of comprehensive and funny. They're not just pulling something out of their tux and reading off a list. Um, but that's not spontaneous, Alyssa. You just asked for more spontaneity. I know, but if you're, I mean, if you're going to Make have, up your mind. Uh, you know what? what I, I contain multitudes. I that's have true. the ability to hold multiple ideas <laughs> in my head at the same time. Um, that's too, and, compl too complex for me. Way too complex. Um, no, I mean, I think if you're going to do 
the speeches after every award, they should be spontaneous. It would also help if the Academy's decisions were more surprising sometimes, right? I mean, when every outcome seems sort of obsessively predetermined, of course, you're not going to get the moments where people are like super drunk or like completely shocked or, you know, you're, you're, when you lose the entertainment value of the actual decisions that the Academy makes, you lose the opportunity for speeches that are in some way particularly interesting. I mean, to me, you know, sort of the, in some ways, the question we're all kind of dancing around here is what responsibility do the winners have when they are making these speeches, right? Are they responsible for marketing the film? I mean, in some ways, they are. It's, it meant in some in some cases, they signed contracts basically saying that whenever you have an opportunity to say something nice about your movie, but especially when you have the giant viewership of the Oscars, you've got to go out there and say the thing that we all agreed we'd say about this movie, you know, how it is important for whatever reasons and you should see it because of blah, blah, blah. Um, in some ways, the stars have a moment to themselves that they can take that they where, as Alyssa said, they can if they have a passion in life that is outside of their movie making, you know, in some ways they can take that moment. And there's, I think, something totally legitimate about that, even if even if it is widely known amongst the stars and the producers of the ceremony and even the producers of the movies you know, that are involved, that um, that doing so is going to turn off a certain segment of viewers. They understand that it's not like they're stupid. They're not unaware that of, of the fact that that Hollywood, on average, is much to the left of of like an a, of average moviegoers who are just there to see Spider Man again. And well, maybe you know, but, separate. But like, I, I sort of don't know exactly how to resolve that, like answer that question. So their responsibility is is to figure out what they want to do with that moment that they have. And then to do that. And sometimes the answer is sell the movie. And sometimes the answer is say something they believe is genuinely important. Well, and I think there's the third question that we haven't asked. Like, you can be responsible for selling the movie. You can be responsible for a, you know, spontaneous moment. Are you responsible to the Oscars as a yeah. commercial product of the Academy? Right? Um, and that's and a I question that's even more fraught this year, I yeah. think, given that the, as you know, Sunny gave us a great rundown at the beginning. Nobody's watching these awards shows, and it's pretty clear that they're terrified that nobody's going to watch this year's awards show, this year's biggest awards show either. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I my my two cents on this is that uh, I like I don't think it would make sense to to lay down a mandate that says no politics at the Oscars. What are they, are they going to play off? You know, an actor who comes out and says Biden is great. You know, what are, the, are they going to they're going to start the orchestra? No, that's not cancel culture. Right. I mean, so like what what do you actually have to do? I mean, I would just impress upon I, I if if I were running the show, if I were Steven Soderbergh and I was talking to the potential winners, I would say, look, you know, everybody knows how you feel about certain things. This is not necessarily the time to say it. Um, unless you have something that is really great and really interesting and really funny to say, I, because it, it really, uh, speaking as speaking as probably the person most to the right, uh, on this show, uh, I, I, I cannot, I cannot, uh, disagree that it gets vaguely annoying to hear the same thing over and over again from the same, uh, group of folks. I mean, we, we get it, we get it. You guys are progressives. Cool, man. That's, that's fine. But like. You're not reinventing the wheel here and you're not convincing anybody is the other thing. It's not like anybody is watching the show and going like, oh, you know what? I've changed my mind now. I mean, uh, there, climate change is bad. There are periodic awareness benefits. Like when people shout out causes that, um, you know, are not particularly well known, there can be big spikes in Google search 
traffic sure. stuff. I mean, so from sort of a pure awareness perspective, I think that's potentially like, I mean, the almost the one sentence thing at the end where it's like, and check out X or you should know why. Um, that's less sort of a screed, but more a almost like a teaser for the issue itself. I mean, um, uh, Yakin Phoenix's Oscar uh, acceptance speech about animal rights was in, I mean, it was definitely more than one sentence, but it's an interesting example just to think about here in that it's an issue that I think if you needed to code it, you would code it as a, a, a left issue rather than a, yeah. a, a conservative issue. But it's not like one of these things that are, you know, idiots in Congress are just arguing about all day long. It doesn't feel like a like a Trump specific or, you know, yeah. or Joe Biden specific issue. Um, and in some ways, that was a that was a kind of interesting speech, right? Because it was so obviously personal and heartfelt from a guy who's an odd guy. Yeah. Like a, he's a really talented artist and also a kind of odd dude who clearly feels really passionately about this and decided to spend yeah. his 90 seconds or whatever telling the world about the thing he thinks matters. Uh, and, and again, I, I, I feel like there is a there is a difference between a partisan uh, issue advocacy moment and a a uh, issue advocacy moment. You know, I, I just think there is I think there's a difference there. I, I feel like people probably have a better response to the the less partisan messages, given how sharply divided everybody is along partisan lines these days. I mean, do we think that there are going to be some speeches that are either that either reference directly or at least implicitly reference voting rights stuff uh, with regards to Georgia well, from sure. people who are yeah. who are in the midst of or just about to go shoot films in Georgia? Yeah. Yeah, probably. Um, I mean, I would be interested to see if anyone says anything about the pandemic. I will be interested to see if anybody says anything about the Uyghurs. Let's yeah. see if yeah. let's see if they say I mean, that, I mean no, that's see, that would, definitely that not would, going to get mentioned that that would take some actual courage yes, right there uh, exactly. saying coming coming onto the stage at the Oscars and saying something in defense of the Uyghurs would be a thing that actually uh, would take courage and guts because it could cost you greatly. Uh, just look at Richard Gere yeah. or Richard. Yeah. Here. I think uh, we're definitely right. going to see stuff about the pandemic. Uh, Soderbergh has said that somehow or another, even though no speeches will be masked and every one of them will be given in one of their satellite hub or like, you know, not uh, not via Zoom. And that's actually interesting that he had that written into his contract that he would not produce a Zoom ceremony. Um, he has also said that that mask wearing will be threaded into the ceremony somehow or another, despite the fact that no one who is giving a speech will be wearing a mask. And so I don't know what that, that means. The attendees will not be wearing masks. I don't know what that means. Maybe the Oscar statue on the stage, on the main stage is going to have a mask on. I have no idea. But I'm actually, I will say that in the past uh, couple of days, I've become more, I don't know about excited, more curious about this ceremony because Soderbergh is promising a radical reinvention. And when Soderbergh promises a radical reinvention of something, he usually actually delivers something that is interesting and weird and different. I mean, the actual solution to the problem here of the speeches is that given that Soderbergh is running this, every single speech should have to be in like a different genre or tone or about different subject material. And so he should turn the entire thing into a massive game of charades. I just hope that it all ends with a, a giant speech to the camera about campaign finance reform. The whole thing is going to be a three hour long <laughs> teaser for like the real magic mic. A hundred percent. All right. Uh, so what do we think? Uh, is talking politics at the Oscars a controversy or a non-troversy? This is a very difficult question, Peter. 
I think it's actually it. a controversy because people find it um, upsetting, and also stars feel like they have a right to do it. And there's a real um, there's a real distance between sort of the star sensibility and the normie viewer sensibility on this, and that makes it controversial. Alyssa, it's a minor controversy. It is definitely a controversy. No more politics at the at the Oscars. That's what the people demand. Just look at the look at the turnoff numbers. All right. Uh, if you enjoy the show and who doesn't, because we talk about politics all the time and that's what everybody wants to hear about. Uh, make sure to head over to atma.thebulwark.com where we will have a special bonus members only episode. Looking back to better times, uh, we will each pick three of our favorite Best Picture nominees since 2010, uh, offering you something to watch instead of the show, rewarding all these movies you've never even heard of. So check that out. We'll have some good recommendations for you and possibly stir up some controversies ourselves. Uh, and now on to the main event. It's the Oscars, folks. We're here to help you make your predictions in that office Oscar pool that you're probably doing over Zoom in violation of Steven Soderbergh's edicts. Uh, each of us will offer up who we think should win in each of the major categories and who we think will win in each of the major categories. Uh, note that we're not doing best screenplays because writers get nothing nice. Uh, but also we haven't read the screenplays and I am of the opinion that if you haven't read the screenplays, you have no idea what's any good or not. Do you? Do you? Peter? Man, I don't know. Sonny? No, I, I think you can. I actually think you can judge a screenplay based on having seen the movie and knowing the dialogue, which is the prime. That's yes, just, it's not the whole screenplay. The dialogue. That's but just I the dialogue. I actually think that's that the, the dialogue thing. that the dialogue uh, is enough. While I, no. I, I agree, incorrect. But if, look, if Disagree. you're voting on this, if you're an actual voting member, you should read the screenplays. I yes. think if you're a if you're a talking head on a podcast, you could just say which screenplay you liked. I'm sorry, I'm sorry. We are more important than the Academy <laughs> members. Okay, let's not let's not downplay our own role here. All right, all right. First up in Best Supporting Actress, uh, here are the nominees. I'm going to read the nominees before each of these categories, so everybody knows what we're talking about. Uh, and I apologize ahead of, ahead of time to all the people whose names I uh, slaughter and butcher. All right, here are the nominees. Maria Bakalova in Borat 2, Glenn Close in Hillbilly Elegy, Olivia Coleman in The Father, Amanda Seyfried in Mank, and Yoon Yoo Jung in Minari. Um, I think Olivia Coleman should win as she is subtly devastating in The Father. Uh, however, she has won recently, so she probably won't win again. Instead, the award will probably go to Yoon Yoo Jung uh, from Minari uh, because everybody wants to have her give a crazy old Korean grandma speech. Peter, who are your picks? I actually think Olivia Coleman will win here. Um, wow. I, I think she is, she is now sort of... Um, a uh, you know a, a kind of grand queen of Hollywood, I think, in a way that she that is that is mostly you know, not mostly that is entirely deserved. Um, and often those folks uh, tend to tend to win sometimes multiple times in a row, especially in a field where there's not somebody who obviously stands out as like this is the person who everybody thinks really just sort of deserves it this year. And I think that this is, I think this is a this is probably. The category that is most wide open, it it might not go to Coleman, um, but I but I if I had to bet, and you're asking me, uh, you know, where where I'd place my bet, I think it will. Um, I think Amanda Seyfried for Mank should win, um, in part because uh, I think she's the best part of that movie, and I I like that movie quite a bit, but I think it is she is the one who brings who brings the most sort of honesty and empathy to to uh, to her scenes in that film and she makes a, a somewhat cold and difficult movie uh she gives it a warmth and a heart that is um that is i think really valuable and really 
sort of keeps that movie afloat and is that's a difficult thing to do in a David Fincher movie is to stand out not just for being sort of um, interestingly antagonistic and cold, but to stand out for being decent and warm and uh, and 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 kind of human. Alyssa. Um, with the caveat that I'm terrible at predicting things, and so you should probably do just the opposite of whatever I say on this podcast. Um, I actually think Amanda Seyfried is going to be the person who wins for Mank. Um, it's mm. the most nominated movie of the year. I don't think it is... I think it, it feels like a lot of people's sort of second choice for things doesn't have... It has a sort of a breadth of support, but not to me sort of momentum or a narrative. Um, I agree that she's the best thing in it. And I also think it's a situation where um, the almost the best narrative in the movie is around her and the fact that she was kind of stuck playing these, you know, kind of dizzy dame roles for much of her career. And then Fincher gave her a role that revealed just how much she can actually do. Um, and so she gets to be a find um, for Academy voters this year in a way that, you know, maybe in a different year, Andre Day would have been for the United States versus Billie Holiday, but people just don't really love that movie. And frankly, it's only okay. Um, and so I think she gets to be sort of the breakout discovery of the year. Um, I'm also going to drive Sunny insane here by saying like, I think this is a good field and would basically be happy if anyone won. Um, I do think that um, Yin Yu Jung, in addition to people wanting to see the sort of wacky Korean grandma speech, um, genuinely does kind of the most things of the people who are nominated in this category. Um, she just really has the range and it's, you know, I thought she was terrific in the movie. I think Minari doesn't really doesn't land in the same way without her. Um, uh, so I would like to see her win. Um, but truly if Glenn Close does win, I will be happy because then JD Vance can't complain about it as part of his Senate campaign. <laughs> I, I actually, I think Glenn Close is great in Hillbilly Elegy. I think she is actually the best part of Hillbilly Billy Elegy. I've mentioned this on the show before, but she like actually reminds me of, of uh, my, my, my family from Ohio. Uh, in a in a very specific way, um, so I would be I'd be happy. I mean, I, I agree with you, Alyssa. Actually, I think this is a wide open category. I think they they could all. I think you could plausibly make a case for any of these people winning. Um, I think that's and right. As as much as I dislike Borat too, uh, I could even I could even make the case there. But, yep. Um, all right. Uh, next up is Best Supporting Actor. Here are the nominees: Sasha Baron Cohen in The Trial of Chicago Seven, Daniel Kaluuya in. Judas and the Black Messiah, Leslie Odom Jr. in One Night in Miami, Paul Rassi in The Sound of Metal, and Lakeith Stanfield in Judas and the Black Messiah. Uh, I think Paul Rassi should win for Sound of Metal. I think he is fantastic. He's wonderfully kind of natural uh, and charismatic in a, in a role that's pretty difficult and tricky to pull off, I think. Um, uh, but I think that Leslie Odom Jr. will probably win for One Night in Miami because he sings. People love to see actors sing. Alyssa! Um, I also would love to see Paul Rossi or Daniel Kaluuya uh, win for Best Supporting Actor. Um, I think that um, Judas and the Black Messiah is, fascinatingly enough, the movie that most people are aware of. And 
despite the fact that Stanfield was sort of the, you know, presented as the character that you have a close relationship with in the um, movie, you know, his, his character is just too opaque. And, you know, we, as we discussed on the podcast, not a character that you could really crack open in a screenplay like this, because he's just too contradictory. There's not really a secret there that you can unlock and explain. Um, and I think Kaluuya does a really good job of taking this, you know, kind of iconic historical figure um, making an audience that might not be familiar with Freddie Hampton understand why you should care about him, but also sort of presenting him as a man in a really deep and profound way. Um, but Paul Rossi is also just amazing in Sound of Metal, which is one of my favorite movies of the year. Um, I actually would not be shocked if this is if um, Sasha Baron Cohen wins, um, because I think that movie is just like boomer bait in certain ways, and um, it is a sort of it, and it's also specifically attractive to a set of voters who probably would be turned off by Borat. Um, and, you know, it gets, you get like the little bit of the radical itch there um, without having to like root for the squares in the movie. Um, so we'll see what happens. Peter. Uh, I'm with both of you. Paul Rossi should win here. He, like that performance is just astounding. And I, I think maybe I didn't love Sound of Metal, although I quite liked it, but I didn't uh, it quite didn't love it quite as much as maybe Alyssa did. But um, Paul Rossi's performance is just just phenomenal. Um, and especially from somebody who you really haven't seen in in a lot of roles before, um, who has who doesn't have, you know, a big, deep track record um, uh, as an actor. Uh, I think um, I'm I'm worried that Alyssa is right, that Sasha Baron, Baron Cohen will win this one. Uh, but actually, my pick is um, for who will win is Daniel Kuehl. Kaluuya, uh, in just part just because he won at the Golden Globes, um, and I think there is just like a, I think there's there's a sense that he's an up and comer who needs to be awarded, um, and this movie is one that a lot of people have heard of, and uh, so this is like the place where they can make a an award to an actor who people know from Get Out, and also um, an actor who is in a movie that somebody watching the Oscars might have actually heard of based on the data that we've. <laughs> Seen so yeah, I uh, I I also worry that Sasha Baron Cohen could win because Hollywood loves him for some reason. I don't get it. I don't I don't understand it. But they are very into Sasha Baron Cohen, who is a is a perfectly fine actor, but also deeply annoying to me. So I, I whatever even kind of liked that movie and liked him in it, but I just don't think it's an Oscar winning role. Yeah. I mean, I, I I have a I have a hard time believing Clue Daniel K is going to win uh, because I, I, I mean, this is a classic split the vote problem between him and Lucky Stanfield. I mean, you got two guys from the same movie. Neither one of them really dominates uh, over the other one. Um, so I don't know. All right. On to best actress. Here are your nominees. Viola Davis in Ma Rainey's Black Bottom. Andre Day in the United States versus Billie Holiday. Vanessa Kirby in Pieces of a Woman. Frances McDormand in Nomadland. And Carrie Mulligan in Promising Young Woman. Who should win? Uh, I think Viola Davis gave the best performance of the year in this category um, of the nominated performers, even though it really at times felt more like a supporting role than a lead it's to me. It's not a lead role. It, it feels it feels very much like a supporting role, despite the fact that she is the title character. Um, if I had to guess, and I do have to guess because that's the game we're playing, uh, but it's going to be Frances McDormand. She's going to win her second Oscar for uh, for Fern in Nomad Land. Uh, Peter, who are your picks? I actually think Carrie Mulligan is going to win. Um, and I think Francis McDormand is the one who should. Francis McDormand's performance is just, just incredible. I think about, I think about 
shots from nomad land every single day and just and the way that she just carried that movie that movie is her face and some mountains in the background and that's it and it's it's an it's you know my feelings about this movie you know i love it but it's like i could just watch francis mcdormand's face shot at magic hour against some some mountains forever and like and that's what that movie is and it's it's wonderful and i think she should win but i think carrie mulligan is going to um and i i think that it is it's the kind of uh in part because promising young woman as we've talked about sort of has a a political cast to it right sort of has has taken on um a, a little bit of a has become a political cause because um because the academy likes to award uh sort of up and comers who have who have established themselves just enough um uh in the the leading role here um and uh, and I think because, again, Promising Young Woman feels like the kind of movie that the Academy is going to gravitate towards this year because it's one that is sure it's not like a, a big blockbuster or anything like that, but it's a um, it's an interestingly nasty little genre film. And and in some ways, it's an it's a crowd pleader pleaser and an audience pleaser as a result. Alyssa. Um, I think it will be Viola Davis or Frances McDormand. Um, and I think it should probably be Frances McDormand just because not only is she the star of Nomadland, she put the whole movie together. Um, and, you know, it's I think it is particularly challenging to be by yourself on screen for that much time, um, but also, frankly, to sort of elevate and work with non-actors, which is what she does yeah. in a bunch of substantial scenes in the movie. Um, and having a presence where, I mean, obviously, Chloe Zhao deserves credit for this too, but just being someone who is a presence who doesn't overwhelm your co-stars in that situation um, and makes the whole thing work, um, I think is it's an unusual accomplishment, not just not least because most people in Hollywood don't ever attempt it. Um, and I think she's great in it. I'm I'm interested to hear you pick uh, "Promising Young Woman," Peter, because I, I I thought for a hot minute at the beginning of this whole uh, campaign cycle that she would be the odds-on favorite, um, and maybe she still is. I you know again I I have had a hard time keeping track of who is obviously the favorite and who isn't. But I, I get the sense that McDormand is kind of racking up the precursor awards in a way that uh, that that she isn't. I, I, anyway, like I said, I, I'm kind of interested to hear you pick that because there was definitely a moment where, uh, where Carrie Mulligan, you know, there was this whole weird thing with the variety freelancer that variety threw under the bus and, you know, talking about her looks and blah, blah, and all that. But that movie seems to really have fallen kind of, out of consideration and off 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 the map in a lot of ways. I do think Emerald Fennel will win best screenplay, which we're not talking about here, um, uh, just because of the whole political valence uh, of of it, and that will be where where the movie gets its award. But I I don't know about Mulligan. Maybe I'm I could be wrong though. I'm often wrong when it comes to this sort of stuff. Look, this I wouldn't definitely... be surprised. Yeah, I mean, I I wouldn't be surprised if McDormand won, but I but I think if there's you know a, a should win will win split here, it's. It's that Mulligan is the most likely to get a should get a will and it versus Francis McDormand, who I just think obviously should win this as as excellent as the Viola Davis performance in Ma Rainey was. It was a supporting performance. Um, and uh, and and I just think Francis McDormand sort of again, L Alyssa's point about working with um, with non-traditional actors with what uh, what they're what they call first timers. Um uh, right is uh, it's it's just an astounding movie and 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 she's so central to it. 
Um, and, and I think she should win it, but I think Carrie Mulligan is going to be the one who Oscar voters are, first of all, they're not voting this week, right? They're voting before like a, a while ago. And so even if the buzz has died down, um, you know, that they were voting in a period where Mulligan probably had a little more buzz and a little more push behind her. Alyssa, what were you going to say? Oh, I just want to say, I mean, this seems to be a category that even professional prognosticators have a lot of trouble figuring out. Like, I don't think there is an odds on favorite here. And for that reason, it could end up being one of the more interesting selections of the evening. But we'll see. I think yeah. we can all say it won't be Vanessa Kirby. Yeah. Sadly. sadly I, no. She's great. I, That's not a knock on Vanessa Kirby. That's just she doesn't seem to have any push behind her. I have not been able to watch Pieces of Woman. I cannot... <laughs> do a movie about a stillbirth um i just need i just want hobbs and shaw's vanessa kirby to be uh, oscar oscar winning actress she's really I, great in that movie she's also great in the crown i mean she's she, i think she's a fine actress actress great actress um, nobody nobody disputes that all right on to best actor here are the nominees riz ahmed in sound of metal chadwick boseman and ma rainey's black bottom anthony hopkins in the father gary oldman in mank Steven Yoon in Minari. Those are the five. This is probably the toughest category for me to pick since I think that all of these are great performances. Should win is Anthony Hopkins, whose work in The Father is tender and subtle and terrifying and charming all at the same time. Will win is maybe Hop Hopkins. I don't know. He, he seems to be racking up a lot of the, the precursors. Um, but I still think Chadwick Boseman probably will win. Uh, posthumously, I just have a very hard time seeing how Hollywood doesn't reward the Black Panther himself in his last chance to take home a statue, um, even if he should have been nominated in the supporting actor category four to five bloods. Alyssa, who do you think will win? I think Chadwick, and should win. I think Chadwick Boseman will win, and I am a dissenter here. I really did not like him in Ma Rainey's Black Bottom. Um, I thought he, I think it's a really overacted performance in a lot of ways. Um, the much better male performance in that movie is Coleman Domingo, who is fantastic. Um, as And just, again, works in a wider range of registers. You know, he is someone who you see sort of the tension building in him in the movie. Um, but when it reaches a boil, it does so in a way that is not, you know, quite as dramatically over the top. I mean, I... I think one of the one of the many things that's incredibly sad about Chadwick about Chadwick Boseman's death is that he's likely to win this Oscar for what I think is one of his least good performances. Um, in terms of who should win, um, I I would say either Anthony Hopkins or Riz Ahmed um, for Sound of Metal. I think um, Hopkins again, like we've I've talked a lot about range on this episode of the podcast, and I think interestingly enough we have a lot of performances this year where actors get to do a lot of things in a single role and none of them more so than Hopkins. Um, but I think Riz Ahmed would also be an excellent choice, not least because I think Sound of Metal just does not work without him, right? I mean, Peter, when we discussed the movie, we talked about how, you know, people in the metal scene are often like very gentle personally, uh, but that's not necessarily something that people outside that scene understand or are interested in at all. And Ahmed has this really wonderful, gentle quality that both makes that um, part of the movie work really well, um, but also makes, but he has this sort of openness and curiosity that makes him a very good guide for, you know, taking the audience into a community of people who, um, you know, speak primarily in ASL. Um, and 
you know, again, he just has this wonderfully watchable face. Um, and I think Sound of Metal just does not work in quite the same way if you don't have another actor in it. Um, I thought he was terrific. Ahmed's performance yeah. there is, is really interesting just because um, it's one of those kind of classic did the work performances, uh, you know, in, in the sense that not so much that like he radically modified his body, although he definitely like took care to generate a specific physical look, but he learned how to drum and he learned how to speak in sign lit, right? How to, how to sign um, and spent seven months just sort of immersing himself in those two, in some ways kind of quite different but related worlds and and like isn't just sort of out there like doing fake drumming and like some whatever stuff with his hands he is speaking he is speaking a language that he had to learn to to perform this role and he is playing music which is itself a, a kind of language um and that's i mean that that is something that's really impressive um that all that said i think bozeman's gonna win i just think there's no question that bozeman is gonna this is the easiest category in some ways for me to predict bozeman is gonna win it um and i think i actually you know look i get what you're saying Alyssa, about the overactedness of the performance, but I also think that in a stagey uh, adaptation of a of, of something that is you know of, of, of a play, it works and it it's super interesting. He throws himself into the style of the production, um, and it works in that context. I'm not sure it would work in a much more naturalistic movie, um, but he he but Bozeman, I think. I don't think that this is like a, a an unusually weak performance for him, and I think that you can that you can say that this is an Oscar worthy performance. Um, that said, if I want to call a uh, if I want to call something a, a should win, that's just uh, you know just to say like here's where I sort of I I gravitate uh, towards the Anthony Hopkins performance in The Father. It's it's really remarkable, especially I mean considering that he is. Uh, he's, I think, in his early 80s now. He probably was 80 when he shot that film, and it just shows a kind of a, a kind of verve and um, an energy, and a, not just a range, but an ability to tone shift um, on uh, on a dime, right? And just to move between these kind of care, like this careful calibration of character, and to make all of these sort of different contradictory elements of an extremely difficult person. Uh, add up. And that's, that is in some ways what I just sort of personally gravitate towards in acting is, is seeing actors who can make characters really complicated and make them seem really real. All right. Next up is best director. Here are the nominees. Thomas Vinterberg for another round. David Fincher for Mank. Lee Isaac Chung for Minari. Chloe Zhao for Nomadland and Emerald Fennel for Promising Young Woman should win is a tough one for me. Um, I don't think Promising Young Woman is a great movie, but I do think uh, that Fennel made it way more interesting vis visually than she needed it to or that I expected it to be. Um, and she coaxed really great performances out of a really, really great cast. So, you know, there there is there's a lot going for it there for and for her there. Uh, but Zhao's Nomadland uh, looks like. Uh, looks even better, frankly, um, and doesn't devolve into the political score po point scoring quite as easily uh, as it could have and as Promising Young Woman does. So my pick uh, for both should and will win is Chloe Zhao. Peter, who do you have? Um, I mean, I, I think uh, I agree, actually. That's that's it. It's Nomadland all the way from here. And I think uh, it's my favorite movie of the year. And it's a 
it's a pretty amazing accomplishment as a director, especially for someone who is relatively early in her career. She's not 40 yet. This is her third feature. Um, and uh, what she's able to do with a relatively low budget, actors who are not, you know, professionals in, in most cases, um, and just kind of the sky mountains and Francis McDormand's face is really incredible and really moving. Um, and to be able to do that and to be able to put that together, right? It's because it's not just sort of like, oh, I've got a good eye and I've made some good shots and I make some editing decisions. It's directing is about starting from nothing. You've got you've you've got no script, you've got no images. You just have an idea for for some images that could be put together on screen. And then you have to go out and create them entirely from scratch. Um, and in this case, with a really a quite small budget. And the fact that that she did it, the, Nomadland just seems like one of those films to me that I sort of like have to pinch myself to realize that it exists, right? It, like somebody made that happen. I know, Sonny. Oh, I know. God, my eyes just rolled out of my head. Alyssa, please stop him from talking. Um, I think Chloe Zhao will win. Um, and I would be perfectly happy if she did win. But I think um, either she or Emerald Fennel uh, should win. Um, and Peter has made the case for Zhao. Um, and I think that Nomadland is an example of, you know, making something look undirected to a certain extent, right? I mean, maybe that's a little bit unfair. There's enough careful framing, but it's it's a very naturalistic movie in a lot of ways. And it's, you know, it's interested in naturalism and the natural world. Promising Young Woman, by contrast, is um, this sort of incredible work of artifice. And um, I think it is a movie that to a certain extent is best appreciated if, like me, you're roughly Emerald Fennel's age. Because Having grown up in the sort of culture that shaped like young white women of a certain educational background and ambition in the 90s and early aughts, you can see how deliberate every single choice in Promising Young Woman is. Um, you know, using like Paris Hilton's single Stars Are Blind in the sort of very charming uh, kind of convenience store sequence um, is something that just automatically strikes this incredibly specific chord with the young women who are the target of this movie. The decision to cast um, in these very specific heartthrob actors as all of the, you know, young male characters who did bad things in the film, um, again, is like just twangs so many incredibly specific cultural resonances. The costumes that you know carrie mulligan's character wears when she goes out on these missions to sort of you know um convince these guys that she's drunk and get them to take her home are all these you know incredibly detailed female archetypes and it is a movie that both you know i don't know that it entirely succeeds at its political project, which I think is actually more nuanced and complicated than it's generally been given credit for. But as a movie that is simultaneously quite entertaining and visually engaging, but that also in every single choice is a work of cultural critique, it is an astonishing movie for a first-time filmmaker um, to nail that level of sort of detail and thoughtfulness and world-building. Um, I think it's, I mean, I am incredibly excited to see what Emerald Fennel does with the rest of her career. Um, and I think she she gave herself, she set a really high bar in this one and also set herself a really hard task. Um, I was just incredibly impressed by it. 
All right. Uh, finally, we have Best Picture. We're there, folks. Uh, here are your nominees. The Father, Judas and the Black Messiah, Mank, Minari, Nomadland, Promising Young Woman, Sound of Metal, and The Trial of the Chicago 7. Uh, the Father should win, as we discussed last week. It is by far the best of the relatively mediocre group of movies. Um, but what will win is probably Nomadland. Uh, some late-breaking criticism of the film for not being anti-Amazon enough notwithstanding. Alyssa, what are your picks? I think Nomadland probably will win, and I'm fine with that. Unlike you, Sunny, I actually thought this was a pretty strong uh, lineup of Best Picture nominees. Um, I mean, I think The Trial of the Chicago 7 has no business belonging in this field whatsoever, but pretty much everything else I found impressive in a certain way. My sentimental pick for Best Picture this year is Sound of Metal, um, which I think, again, was just a high degree of difficulty in subject matter in sort of what it asked to the audience and yet pulls it off with such sort of empathy. It's, you know, it's definitely like, it's the movie that does the most interesting stuff with sound design. Um, I think there's not a bad performance in it. Um, it's a sentimental pick, but it's my pick. Peter, what are your picks for should win, will win? You know the answer to this. It's Nomadland and Nomadland. Good show, folks. Good show. There we go. I don't need I don't we don't need another 45 seconds of Peter looking wistfully into the distance as he talks about the grays and the pinks and the I'm sorry, go ahead. Wait, finish please finish your thoughts. No, that's it. It's just Nomadland <laughs> should win and Nomad win. Nomadland will win. And uh, and it's going to be a triumph of correct decision making from the Academy for once. Um, and I, I'm like, I, the Academy just makes terrible decisions about Best Picture all the time, which is why I'm like terrified that the trial of the Chicago 7 is going to win. As we can tell this year by the fact that Tenet wasn't nominated. Tenet screwed again. Christopher Nolan, call your agent. All right. Uh that is it for today's show. If you loved it, please uh, check out our members only bonus episode on the best best picture nominees of the last decade or so. Uh, make sure to tell your friends a strong recommendation from a friend is basically the only way to grow podcast audiences. And if we don't grow, we'll die. If you didn't love today's episode, please complain to me on Twitter at Sunny Bunch. I will convince you that it is, in fact, the best show in your podcast feed. See you guys next week.